We can be turning in our Bibles to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. We are now to the last section of the book of Genesis, which begins, these are the generations of Jacob. So the last Toledot section, uh, which begin, always begins, these are the generations of so-and-so. And as is often the case in Genesis, when it says these are the generations of someone, it often talks more about their, their sons than that person themselves. So here when it says these are the generations of Jacob, Jacob is still part of the story, but this is as much about or maybe more about Jacob's sons as Genesis winds up and it transitions us from Jacob and his family in the promised land to Jacob and his family in Egypt, awaiting uh, deliverance and the conquest of Canaan. In many ways, this last section is a, has a lot to say about Joseph, the son of Rachel. Uh, he's one of two sons of Rachel, but the oldest son of Rachel, who was Jacob's uh, original one true love and his favorite wife. Rachel's dead now. But Rachel had two sons, Joseph and then Benjamin, who at this point is probably maybe a couple years old, uh, pretty young. But Joseph, as we will see, is 17 years old, his late teens. He is beginning to grow up. And we will see this great conflict emerge between Joseph and his brothers. And that will define much of the last section of Genesis and I encourage you, many of you, probably most, probably all of you, know a lot about the story of Joseph. I encourage you not to be um, careless listeners because of that, but to still listen carefully, to still see connections maybe you haven't seen before uh, within the Word of God and connections with, with your own life and uh, things that point to our Savior as well. Let's read verses 2 through 11 of Genesis 37, as we look at Joseph, the hated brother. Joseph, the hated brother. Verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. That is, the, his secondary wives, lesser wives, his concubines. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around uh, around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, 
What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. That's as much as we'll cover this morning. Joseph the hated brother. We want to talk, first of all, about why Joseph's brothers hated him. And then, secondly, we'll talk about why this part of Joseph's story matters. But first of all, why Joseph's brothers hated him. Three reasons, um, as three episodes are called out here. Um, Well, you can say three or four, but we're doing three. First of all, first reason Joseph's brothers hated him was that he was his father's beloved dignitary. That's how he was treated, as his father's beloved dignitary, verses 2 through 4. It says, Joseph was 17 years old, and he was, he was watching the sheep. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And specifically, he was a boy, it says, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So the sons of the lesser wives. Uh, who had been handmaids to Leah and to Rachel and had had been uh, engaged in this struggle to get the most children, the most sons for Jacob. You remember that whole conflict from the previous section of Genesis, or a few sections back. But as it says, um, he was a boy with these these brothers of his. In the context, that word for boy might have more to do with his job than his age. It may mean something like he was their their helper, their apprentice, their attendant. Um, in any case, Joseph is younger than all the rest of his brothers except for Benjamin, who's really small. He's the little brother, and yet he's the son of the favorite wife. He's the son of Jacob's old age. And so Jacob, or Israel as God has renamed him, favors Joseph. Now, it says, Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and he brought a bad report, particularly of the four sons of the concubines, he brought a bad report about them to their father. Or some translate it, one person, particularly one commentator, thinks maybe it should be translated that he brought their slanders against him to their father. But either way, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were exposed in some sort of misconduct. Uh, And Joseph was the agent of exposing them. And of course they didn't appreciate that. Your little brother, as you see it, tattling on you, making you look bad to dad. Well, I'm sure we all appreciate that. So already things are ramping up. And and, you know, there, there were already divisions in this family according to who was the son of which wife. We already know that. But then, verse 3, as it says, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. It says, and he made him a robe. uh, We often call it a coat, similar robe, coat of many colors. That that, um, translation, robe of many colors, is based on the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Um, But many now think that maybe it has less to do with color and more to do with the, the length. It was a long, flowing thing, perhaps, that reached to the, the wrists and the ankles. Uh, this was a tunic. Um, 
I'll just read um, what Leupold says here. He says, The outward distinction which the Father bestows upon this Son is a long-sleeved cloak. Um, a ketheneth passim. The ketheneth is the undergarment, or tunic, which usually was sleeveless, a thing of about knee length. But passim means ankles or wrists. Consequently, this tunic was sleeved and extended to the ankles. It was not, therefore, a garment adapted to work, but suitable to distinguish a superior or an overseer. By this very garment, the father expressed his thought that that this son, this son, excuse me, that this son should have preeminence over the rest. For Reuben had sacrificed his claim by incest. Simeon and Levi were poor candidates for leaders because of their headstrong cruelty. Remember, Reuben had slept with his father's concubine Bilhah. Simeon and Levi had murdered an entire city of men, Shechem. So it seems like Israel is um, essentially giving almost a royal robe to his son. (laughs) Uh, um, An outfit that certainly would indicate, you know, he's a notch above the rest. He's special. We all get that. Whether it was a coat of many colors or whether it was just uh, very long and flowy. It was, in the other brother's eyes, it would have been ostentatious. It would have been, who does he think he is to wear that? So, Joseph was treated as his father's beloved dignitary. Everyone knew he was loved best. But then his father bestows, just heaps honor upon him. And in the context, Joseph has also been uh, showing up his brothers for their bad deeds. But secondly, why did Joseph's brothers hate him? Well, verses 5 through 8. They hated him because Joseph was his brother's prophesied superior. His brother's prophesied superior. Let's read verses 5 through 8 again. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. So, um, wheat, probably, in the field. uh, Some sort of grain. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Um, Not only in ancient times did people place great stock in dreams about um, as telling them important things. But in the Bible, God tells us he did communicate with many of his prophets um, through dreams and visions and things of that sort. And already we've seen Abraham have have important communications from God in dreams, and Isaac as well. Um, uh, Jacob, specifically, actually, is who I was thinking of, at Bethel, for instance. And now Joseph has a dream. And he tells... <laughs> this is the one thing about Joseph in this text that uh, you might not want to imitate this example. He's a, a bit free with uh, expressing things that might not help his relationship with his brothers. (laughs) He's immature, obviously. Um, I don't know if he was just a a little spacey, 
not not just not getting it what what this is going to do, or whether he just didn't care, a little arrogant. Um, the text doesn't really tell us. But he tells his dream to his brothers, and they say, well, obviously this means our sheaves bowing to his sheave. It obviously means he's going to be our superior somehow. Rule and reign over us. We're going to bow to him. Never. That would never happen. We wouldn't let it happen. (laughs) But it's interesting that the dream, as Steinman says, clearly placed Joseph and his brothers in an unfamiliar setting. They were shepherds, not farmers. But there was a hint here of what was to come. They would bow to Joseph in the context of gathered grain when they came to Egypt. Interesting there. So Joseph was was his father's beloved dignitary. Now he's his brother's prophesied superior. It's been prophesied in a dream that they'll bow to him. And they hate that. Third, um, his next dream reveals him as his family's glorious sovereign. <laughs> his family's glorious sovereign. Verses 9 through 11. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Notice, I hope you will notice as we go through Joseph's story, this isn't the only time that dreams come in pairs. There's a couple of dreams together emphasizing the same point. This isn't the last time this happens. And uh, as Joseph tells the king of Egypt, Genesis 41:32, the reason the dream repeats in that case is because of the certainty of the matter from God that God will quickly do it. So two different dreams emphasizing the same point. Um, emphasize how certain this is from God. God will certainly bring this to pass. Now, in this second dream, Joseph sees the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. And in the scripture, uh, here, and then we'll see Revelation 12, the sun, the moon, and in that case, 12 stars in the book of the Revelation that represents the entire family of Israel, as God's covenant people, the people of the promised Savior. Um, Revelation 12, 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And then another sign appears in heaven, a, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Later in the text it calls this dragon the devil and Satan. On his head seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, indicating his persecution of God's people. You compare that to the book of Daniel. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, etc., But in that text in Revelation 12, you have the sun, the moon, and 12 stars uh, surrounding this woman who gives birth to the Messiah. And 
uh, at that point in, in the symbolism, it's this old covenant people of Israel that brings forth the Messiah and, and um, it indicates even the true people of God, true believers as well. But at any rate, think of what the sun, the moon, and the stars communicate. That's much more glorious than sheaves of grain, right? It's, it communicates heavenly glory. God sets his glory upon his people. They're glorious because God bestows glory upon them. But in Joseph's dream, all the glorious host of heaven bows before his glorious sovereignty. He's apparently more glorious than all the rest, than the sun, the moon, and the stars. What preeminence. And he's telling this, Joseph's telling this, knowing it means he will be a glorious sovereign over his entire family, even his father. Who does this upstart 17-year-old think he is? Now, his brothers react by simply being more jealous of Joseph. Meredith Klein mentions that Joseph's brothers here, as we're thinking about Genesis, they behaved like Cain, seed of Satan, obsessed by jealous hatred because of God's acceptance of his brother, with murderous thoughts crouching like a beast at his heart, ready to overmaster him. That's what happened to Cain. Joseph's brothers were prepared to yield to such demonic dominion rather than accept the rule of Joseph forecast in the dream. He's right. It's interesting, even though God will change these brothers over time, at this point, they're acting more like Cain toward Abel in the book of Genesis than like anyone else. They grew jealous, but their father, after rebuking Joseph for being that impertinent, their father kept the words in mind, it says. He kept the saying in mind. This means something. He had the dream. That probably means something from God. And Derek Kidner mentions the two attitudes in this verse are those that always divide people in their reactions to news from God. The brother's skepticism was emotional and hasty. The father's open mind was the product of some humility. Israel had learnt by now, as his sons had not, to allow for God's hand in affairs and for his right of choice among men. In fact, that wording, his father kept the saying in mind, if you look at that in the Greek Old Testament, which Jesus and his apostles often use, it's very similar wording in the Greek to what's said of Mary. First, when the shepherds told her, what the angels had proclaimed about her son, Jesus. And it says, But Mary treasured up all these things. Literally, she kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. And then, when Jesus was 12 years old in the temple, and his father and mother, uh, Joseph and Mary, were upset with him because they lost him, and he was in the temple interacting with the teachers of the law, and Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And then it says, and his mother treasured up all these things. Literally, she kept all these sayings, nearly identical to this place in Genesis 37. She kept all these sayings in her heart. Interesting. The similarity is... 
Jacob or Israel knows this dream, which Joseph told him about, this means something about what this child will be. Now, we've worked our way through the text, and we've seen why Joseph's brothers hated him. He was his father's beloved dignitary. He was his brother's prophesied superior. He was to be his family's glorious sovereign. Okay. But why does this part of Joseph's story matter? First of all, as we're just beginning Joseph's story, we already see God's invincible plan of redemption here. God's invincible, his unstoppable plan of redemption. Who's giving Joseph these dreams? Is Joseph making this up? No. God's giving him the dreams. God gave Joseph these dreams so that when they came to pass against all odds, everyone would know that Joseph's exaltation as ruler and savior was God's unstoppable plan from the very beginning. This is God's way. This is how he loves, delights to work. He has announced his great purposes, his covenantal decree of redemption, so that he will get all the glory when it comes to pass against all odds and against all the rage of his enemies. Turn to Isaiah 41 with me, please. Isaiah 41. In the days of Isaiah, God has already prophesied that he will remove Israel, remove Judah from the promised land for their sins, but he will bring them back out of exile even after that. He's already speaking of things a few hundred years in the future from Isaiah's time. And then God prophesies that he will raise up a deliverer, Cyrus, the Persian, to allow his people to go back to the promised land. But God here is emphasizing in the Hebrew poetry of this part of Isaiah, Isaiah 41, God's emphasizing the fact that he, being the true God, can predict the future because he determines the future and he brings the future to pass and no one can stop him. Isaiah 41, verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Jump down to verse 21. Verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen, referring to the idols, the false gods of the nations, and those who serve them. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. 
I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, Cyrus, the Persian. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Go to the next chapter for just two verses. Isaiah 42, verses 8 through 9. 42, 8 through 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's way. He can tell us, and he does tell us, the end from the beginning, so that all may know he is the true and living God, and there is none like him. And things happen because it is the Lord who brings good or creates calamity, as the scripture says. The Lord does all these things. God is not making this up as he goes. He does not adapt his plan in reaction to his creature's actions. He's not just a good adapter. No. Whatever you are experiencing right now, you have his unshakable promises in his word that won't change. The circumstances won't change the truth of those promises. Because everything's heading to the fulfillment of those promises. Like Joseph, you know the end of the story because God has already written the story. Oh, God hasn't revealed all the details to us. Far from it. Joseph didn't know the storyline of his life ahead of time, did he? But God has told us enough that we can know what matters most. God will be glorified as his chosen ruler is exalted over all. And that will happen in spite of and even because of the hatred of evil men. It's all part of the plan. That leads to the second reason why this story in Genesis 37 matters. We talked about God's invincible, unstoppable plan of redemption. But secondly, we see Joseph's... um, Well, you know what, I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself, I'm sorry. Um, Let me introduce it this way. You know, we can learn, we can each learn lessons of good character and morality, even godliness from parts of Joseph's life, can't we? And we will point those things out as we go through the story. We'll see later how Joseph fled seduction and temptation. We'll see how he um, maintained faith in God in the worst of circumstances, seemingly forgotten in prison, etc., Many things we can learn from Joseph, from parts of his story. But Joseph's life is not about you. And it's not even about how great Joseph was. The grand lesson of this story is not be like Joseph. There's elements of that, but that's not the big point. Joseph's life doesn't point to you, it points to your Savior. 
So the second thing we see here is Joseph's dim portrait of Jesus. His dim portrait of Jesus. Joseph was his father's beloved dignitary. He was his brother's prophesied superior. And he would one day be his family's glorious sovereign. In fact, he would graciously save Israel and the nations from certain death. Now that sounds like you, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. (laughs) That's not you that it's pointing to. But who does it sound like? You see, all through Old Testament history, God saves, excuse me, God gave his people Israel patterns. Patterns to understand how he delights to work. For instance, how he delights to exalt that which the proud hate and despise. That's what God does. He puts the proud down as he exalts that which they hate and despise. Patterns of how God delights to fulfill his word in spite of how the wicked rage against it. And God gave patterns which would all come to their apex, their, their, their greatest point in the ultimate heir of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ultimate Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. So when you read about Joseph, when you read about Moses, Later in the book of Exodus, very similar. There's patterns God is laying out in his people's history to prepare them for the ultimate savior. Joseph was hated, though he was relatively innocent. And Jesus was hated and despised, though he was absolutely innocent. He was holy. Isaiah 53 verse 1 emphasizes how... Even the Messiah's own people would find it hard to believe what God would, who God would choose as his Messiah, who God would raise up, how he would do it. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Also, Joseph's ultimate exaltation was revealed to him before his sufferings. He had the dreams before he went through any of his sufferings. And on an even grander scale, Jesus endured suffering... Because of God, the Father's covenant promises to him. Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, verse 2, that we are should run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners Such hostility against himself, it says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured from sinners such hostility. How did he do that? For because of the joy set before him. Jesus knew the end of the story. He had promises from his father that every knee would bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He had promises of a people who would be effectively ransomed, redeemed, bought by his blood. He would have a numberless host whom he saved by his sufferings. Jesus knew the end of the story, and so for that joyous ending, he could endure anything. Such hostility from sinners. That leads to the third and final reason why the beginning of Joseph's story matters. And that is man's evil resentment of the Savior, whether it's Joseph or Jesus. Man's evil resentment of the Savior. Joseph's brothers hated him because, though they were all sons of Israel, their father demonstrated he specially loved Joseph. And when Jesus came as God the Father's beloved, his only begotten son, the only way to be right with the Father, those who thought themselves already good enough for God hated Jesus for that. And when Jesus declared that he was God's promised king, that he was the fulfillment of all God's promises, those who grew up with him were insulted. Turn to Luke chapter 3 with me. Luke chapter 3. Verses 21 through 22, and then we'll skip to chapter 4. When Jesus began his public ministry by submitting to baptism, the baptism of John in the River Jordan, God the Father let everyone know that Jesus was his one specially beloved one. Luke 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Skip to chapter 4 of Luke. Verse 14. Jesus returns fresh from this declaration of his baptism. And then from his victory over Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Verse 14 of Luke 4. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Whereas we might say he had grown up in church, under the rabbis, we, in our language, his, his boyhood pastors. <laughs> his family was known to everyone there. Certainly, many people knew about the, what they would think of as the questionable circumstances of his conception. This is where he was brought up, where he learned a trade as a carpenter, as, as, um, as a tradesman, alongside his father, Joseph. There was nothing special about him, people thought. This was the boy they had seen growing up. In their town, which was not, it was not a exalted town. It was Nazareth. Pretty despised. 
So verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That is, they couldn't deny he's speaking powerfully. But they're confused. Where did he get all this? What changed? We know him. Because next they say, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. He was sent to a Gentile, not even the people of Israel. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, Jesus is telling the people he grew up with and his elders in front of whom he grew up, he's telling them, be careful. I don't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you anything. Just because I grew up here. You need to believe without me proving myself to you. So verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And of course it goes on to say that they tried to kill him. Throw him off the cliff outside of town. Those who grew up with Jesus couldn't stomach the thought that this upstart would proclaim himself Lord and Messiah. They wanted him to at least prove himself to them and dance to their tune. And he said, no, you simply have to believe. You have to get with God's agenda here. (laughs) And they were filled with wrath. But it isn't just the Jews of Jesus' day or the residents of Nazareth who resented their Savior. We're all sinners. And sinners naturally hate God and hate his chosen Savior. In our natural condition in which we're born, apart from the grace of God. We want God to accept us on our own merits. Though like Jacob's sons, we all have actually bad records of rebellion, treachery, cruelty. But Jacob's sons didn't want Joseph to be their head. They wanted dad to recognize them on their merits, though those merits were questionable. And we do the same thing, don't we? We're proud 
far too proud to humble ourselves before the one man whose perfect righteousness exposes our sin, our evil. When sinners are confronted with Jesus' holiness and glory, they like to respond with flippancy. How many people use Jesus' name simply as a forgettable exclamation, even a profane curse? We find ways to ignore his day of worship, or else we just go through the motions so we can get on with our real interests. Our hearts rebel at the thought that Jesus gave us a book that we ought to read, that he gave us commands we ought to obey, that he gave us truth we must believe. Bow before this man, Jesus? Who does he think he is to judge us, the world says? But Jesus is God's only begotten Son. That's the fact of the matter. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Jesus. So if you are still in your natural resentment of God and his plan, doesn't match up with your agenda, give up your pride. Lay aside your resentment. Confess that you are as evil as Jesus says you are. Bow before him in sincere repentance and faith. And those of us who are already believers in Jesus, we still struggle with this principle. We still have the principle of evil warring within us against the new nature. We too often fail to honor our Savior when it counts most. Because we have natural pride and rebellion still hiding in there. Sin within us stirs up self-righteousness and stubborn independence. And some days we just want to live like the unbelieving world again. Do you feel the tug of that temptation? The world around us encourages us to disregard Jesus. At least today. Just live your life and forget what God has declared about his son. After all, how can you really believe that life is all about Jesus Christ? How can you really believe he created all things? And that everyone who has ever lived will someday answer to him. Salvation through a crucified Savior, Jesus returning in power and glory, judging the living and the dead. Jesus sending everyone to either heaven or hell. At best, the world reacts with patronizing, you know, patronizing pat on the head. Those are just ridiculous dreams. Those are children's stories. But those things are not ridiculous dreams. They are God's testimony concerning his son. There's nothing more certain in all the world than God's testimony concerning his son. So we have to live like it. 1 John 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's the basis of our Christian faith. That we don't call God a liar. We accept his testimony about his son. Though all the world rejects it. They call it a ridiculous dream, a ridiculous fantasy. But the truth is what John 3, verses 35 and 36 say. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As I said, we will see many things, even in Joseph personally, worthy of imitation. But the story ultimately prepares God's people to think in the proper categories about Jesus, about the Savior. Do you accept Jesus as the Father's one beloved one? Do you bow before him? Or does your heart want to scoff? at his claims of exclusivity and his claims over you. Don't hate the one God has chosen as Savior. Bow before him. And then as you go about your life this week, don't act as if, well, that's all fine for Sunday. But on Monday, on Tuesday, I can live my life. Jesus doesn't have much to do with it. Realize if you belong to Jesus, Jesus is all that matters. And you must bow before him day by day, not just on Sunday. Again, if you have not bowed before Jesus at all, you need to. One day you will, but you need to do it now. In the proper context. He'll welcome you. He'll receive you. He'll reconcile you to the Father. You'll have a right relationship with God your Father. But only through Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer shall we? Lord we thank you for. Even in the Old Testament. How you remind us of the most important truths in all the world concerning your son and the testimony you have given us about him. I ask that everyone here would accept wholeheartedly the honor you've placed on your only begotten son and that they will not in pride and arrogance turn away. Help us to live consistently, Father, with our our confession that Jesus is Lord. May we live as if he really is Lord over our thoughts, over our affections, over our interests and our friends and our possessions and our time and our energy and our focus. 
Help us to bow before Him and enjoy the communion we have with You through Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.